This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Stories in Music brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. From Peter and the Wolf and the Story of Swan Lake to a hilarious bel canto opera called Juanita the Spanish Lobster, these recordings are designed to introduce classic tales, history, and exciting musical performances to children. The Maestro Classic Stories in Music series has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classic CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Spinning sweet melodies, hitting thrilling high notes... Revealing a character's soul through song, it's all in a day's work for great divas of the operatic stage. What are the stories behind the voices that have given us such beauty and passion? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. The history of diva worship across centuries of opera usually involves onstage magic paired with offstage mayhem. Stories of glamour and stardom, exorbitant fees, precious friendships, vicious rivalries, and hard-earned respect are all connected to seemingly superhuman voices. I'm Naomi Baratera, and in today's episode, lecturer and scholar Matthew Timmermans continues with part two of our series, Divas Uncensored. was Beverly Sills singing the end of Elisabetta I's aria from Donizetti's Roberto Devereux. Unlike diva Renata Scotto, who we discussed in the previous podcast, Sills triumphed over the clacks at La Scala. Sills, a New York native and coloratura soprano, made her La Scala debut in 1969 as Pamira in Rossini's L'Assedio di Corinto. Due to its length and difficulty, this rarely performed opera hadn't been seen at La Scala since 1852. In 1969, it was scheduled to make its illustrious reappearance to commemorate Rossini's centenary with Renata Scotto, a year before her appearance in Ivespri. Unfortunately, she was pregnant and could not sing the role. Apparently, when the very successful publicist Edgar Vincent was asked by the Covent Garden conductor Thomas Shippers which singer was proficient in Italian, could learn a long, difficult role in four months, and could fly to Rome to spend some time learning the role with him, Vincent responded, call Beverly Sills, and hung up the phone. Joining Sills to make her second appearance at La Scala was Marilyn Horn, who had debuted earlier that season. According to Sills, Horn had already learned that at La Scala, you don't say please, you always talk in loud, booming tones, and you play prima donna 24 hours a day. 
Otherwise, nobody pays attention to you. Fortunately for us, Sills learned this lesson the hard way. During the rehearsals for La Sedio, when Sills was measured for her costume, she noticed that the design was in gold. She proposed that silver would better complement her red hair, to which the costume designer agreed. However, Sills explained that, on the day of the first piano dress rehearsal, I walked into my dressing room, and hanging on a hook was my costume, in gold. I took the costume, walked on stage, and asked the technical director to summon the costume lady. I said, did I not tell you to make this costume in silver? Oh, si, senora, replied the costume lady. I then took the gold costume, folded it very carefully into a square, lifted a pair of scissors the costume lady had dangling around her neck, and slowly and deliberately cut the costume in half. Then with a smile, I said, now go back upstairs and make the costume in silver. Apparently, the chorus broke into wild applause, and when Sills went upstairs to see Signor Luciano Celi, who was the artistic director of La Scala, he smiled and said, Well, we were all wondering when it was going to happen. You're always so cheerful. You speak so softly. We kept wondering, when is this lady who is so famous for her acting temperament, when are we going to see some of her temperament? Getting back to Sills and the La Scala clacks, though, the majority of La Sedio's cast was American, so they were worried that they would face some hostility from the audience performing at Italy's most famous house in a relatively unknown work. In fact, the production was humorously referred to as the Siege of the Americans. In her autobiography, Sills remembers that we'd been warned by colleagues in the United States that the clack would make serious financial demands on all of us in view of the fact that we were Americans singing in their house. In addition to supporting certain divas, clacks could also be paid to act as supporters or detractors in the audience. In this story, the entire cast, including Sills, Horn, and Shippers, decided to pay off the clacks. $25 each which turned out to be completely unnecessary given the caliber of the performance. In fact, following the evening, Sills received nicknames such as La Sills, La Phenomena, and Il Monstro. This is in part because the role of Pamira was written for one of the greatest Rossinian singers of the 19th century, Isabella Cobran, Rossini's wife, and a diva in her own right. Given Cobran's technical proficiency, it's not surprising that after first looking at the score, Sills remarked, it has so many notes that I wish I had been paid by the note rather than by performance. Here is Pamira's show-stopping aria from the 1969 premiere of La Sedio at La Scala.
Even when threatened by a clack, the next diva refused to pay them. Rumored to have the biggest voice in the world, coupled with what some describe as laser-like high notes, Birgit Nielsen broke the record for the highest paid singer at the Metropolitan Opera in the 1960s. In addition to her distinctive voice and enormous fees, Nielsen was famously known for the humorous competitions she would have with her colleagues. One of these rivalries was famously between Nielsen and Zinka Milanov, who sang the majority of the Met's Verdi heroines through the 40s and 50s. Despite Nielsen being better known for Wagner's heroines as opposed to Verdi's, Aida was a point of contention between these two divas. The role of Aida had been practically owned by Milanov at the Met since 1938. Although Milanov was no longer performing Aida with the company when Nielsen was engaged in 1961, Milanov was still upset that Nielsen might erode the memory of her performances. Milanov executed her revenge as only a diva can by taking off in the Rolls Royce Nielsen had hired for after the performance. In her defense, Milanov said, if Madame Nielsen takes my roles, I must take her roles. You may have heard Ira Siff talk about another rivalry involving Nielsen in the third part of his Opera Duos podcast. This was between Nielsen and tenor Franco Corelli. This competition reached its apex whenever these two singers performed Puccini's Turandot. In the riddle scene, when Princess Turandot asks Calaf a series of difficult riddles to obtain his head, the figurative competition became a literal one. Nielsen and Corelli would face off each night to see who could hold the high seas the longest. Nielsen admits in her autobiography that Corelli often proved to be the winner. However, on one evening, when Corelli lost, he stomped into the wings and he did not return to finish the act. As it turns out, Corelli hit his fist so hard into the table that he lacerated his hand. According to Nielsen, Rudolf Bing, the Met's general manager at the time, convinced Corelli to complete the last act with the suggestion that he bite Nielsen instead of kissing her at the end of the opera. Although Corelli did not end up going through with what would have been an unforgettable kiss, Bing received a telegram the next day that said, must cancel performance, stop. Serious bite injury, stop. Birgit. 
Yeah. No, in Turandotti competition is normal because it's a, it's a duo. In other words, she asks me and I must, uh, and I must uh, um, answer, you know? And uh, she sings page to page and I must sing page to page, you know? And uh, I must, she was singing with uh, so big a voice that uh, make me really afraid and I was almost there. I was ready afraid. to to take a breath after, oh my listen, God. Listen, listen, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, excuse me, huh? Excuse no, me. but uh, I won't say only one thing. I remember one night in the Scala that uh, uh, in the second act they are um, in, together, one I see. And this is, Yenik mi so, not really, la morte, ta 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 ta, she's in back of me, and I am in front. You know, when people try to do one I see, is the all of the, I speak for myself, you know, is all, all fort is in his in his body. I cannot hear her in back. And I, I, I take this I see in front and I take so long that I turn for see if Miss Nilsson and she was there with this I see. <laughs> My God, I cannot I I don't know what to be and the, the public came bar I remember it was the one the night that the, He's in my you were uh, always keeping half an hour late, uh, longer than I. <laughs> Although the incident in Turandot is certainly amusing, my favorite story brings us back again to Nielsen in Aida, but this time with Corelli as her rival. In 1967, the EMI record company assembled an all-star cast to record Aida, including Nielsen as Aida and Corelli as Radames. Despite the lack of an audience, Corelli still insisted on being the king of the high seas. However, it seems that Corelli once again underestimated his opponent. During the ensemble approaching the finale of Act Two, just before the spot where Kalas had interpolated her high E flat, Aida caps off the scene with a written high C. In the recording, as the ensemble approached this note, Nielsen noticed that Corelli moved as close as possible to the microphone and then also sang the high C, even though it does not appear in his part. Apparently, Nielsen walked off the stage, at which point the producer ran after her to ask what had happened. In her cheeky fashion, Nielsen responded that they obviously had another singer who could sing the part of Aida, and I do not want to stand in anyone's way. Seeing as we have the recording today, you might correctly presume that Corelli apologized and they completed the opera.
What makes this story worth retelling is the fact that I have yet to find another recorded performance of Aida in which Corelli does not interpolate a high C at this very moment in the opera. It seems that only with Nielsen does he sing the role as written. I suppose La Scala did not call her La Voce di Vendetta, or the voice of revenge for nothing. Here is a live recording with Corelli and Martina Arroyo as Aida at the Met in 1971, just a few years after the EMI recording. Like Corelli's other live recordings of Aida, you can hear that Corelli does not miss the opportunity to join her on the high sea. While still on the topic of Aida, which seems to be an opera of reoccurring mayhem in this podcast, Nielsen recalls a story in her autobiography about our next diva, Montserrat Caballé. During the 1960s, it was well known that this famous soprano had one of the most beautiful voices of the century that could spin out gossamer pianissimi. It was also common knowledge in the operatic community that she would sometimes inexplicably faint while performing on stage. When Nielsen met Hans Wallat, conductor at the Mannheim School of Music, he said the performance of someone named Abaye as Aida had been a fantastic success. Who might this Abaye be? Wallat explained that it was Montserrat Caballé, who just before the high sea in the Nile aria had fainted. Thus, there was no high sea. Therefore, she was rebaptized Abaye. Here is Caballé successfully landing the aforementioned high sea on the EMI recording conducted by Ricardo Muti. Although these little blackouts were somewhat alarming, the situations that Caballé found herself in afterward were also quite amusing. In a production of Turandot in Buenos Aires, Caballé fainted at the moment when her role, Liu, commits suicide in Act 3. Unlike in Aida, Nielsen does not fail to note the convenience of this spell, except for the poor carriers of the corpse who had to carry her all the way to her dressing room where she came to. The story becomes even more entertaining when we learn that Caballé ran back on stage for the final bows, wigless. With only a nylon stocking on her head, she appeared as though she were bald. Outside of her fainting, Caballé was no stranger to humorous stories about her acting on stage. After the opening night of Puccini's Tosca at the Met in 1985, critic Michael Redmond wrote, Caballé never ceases to amaze it's doubtful that any soprano with less sumptuous gifts could get away with her inimitable stage business. For instance, in Act Two, having decided to submit to Scarpia's advances, Caballé's Tosca removes her earrings and begins unbuttoning the sleeves of her gown. Then, having decided to murder Scarpia, she rebuttons the sleeves and picks up the earrings, just like that. Later in the scene, while searching for the papers of safe conduct Tosca needs in order to save herself and her lover, Cavaradossi, Caballé sends papers and books flying off of Scarpia's desk and knocked over his chair. What next? One has to wonder, the desk itself? The bookcases? But nothing could top Caballé's handling of Tosca's flamingly melodramatic suicide. Other sopranos rush to the parapet, stage center, and leap to their deaths. Not Caballé. 
With tremendous dignity, she gathered up her skirts and exited, rather mysteriously, stage right. Apparently, this diva simply does not leap from parapets in any circumstances. Caballé is one soprano that can make Pavarotti look like Laurence Olivier, which is saying something. But no one really cares. With a voice like hers, the audience is more than willing to accept anything in the way of characterization. That is precisely why Caballé is a prima donna and a prima donna of the old school. The voice is everything. Undeniably, Caballé could stop the show with her voice, giving a face to the phrase, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. One of my personal favorite examples is Caballé's portrayal of Queen Elisabetta in Vergi's Don Carlo. At the end of the opera, when the Grand Inquisitor comes to kill Don Carlo, the king's son and the queen's lover, Elisabetta lets out a high B, as if screaming in agony. Unlike on the 1970 Angel Studio recording that we just heard, in several performances, Caballé jumps up to a high B as written. However, instead of holding it for a few seconds, she stretches the note until, as one viewer claimed, the curtain literally comes down in front of her. I have no idea what the inspiration behind this feat was, and I have never heard another singer do it. But whatever the inspiration, she was inspired to do it several times. It was first recorded in 1969 in Verona. Another instance was in 1972 at the Met, ironically with Corelli. Was it possibly a competition with the tenor again? Thank <laughs> you. 
So far in this episode, we have touched on a few tales about dueling divas and divos. But what happens when two divas face off? We shall see in the next few stories, which have one thing in common. They are all symptomatic of what Renato Scotto describes as the prima donna complex. She uses this term to refer to mezzo-sopranos that try to perform soprano roles only to misbehave when they return to mezzo-soprano ones. There are many reasons that mezzo-sopranos may want to be a soprano, including, as Scotto notes, the desire to be the prima donna, or as Grace Bumbry once said, higher fees. What is certain is that soprano or not, mezzo-sopranos can be just as much, if not more, diva-esque than sopranos. Our first example features mezzo Grace Bumbry and soprano Leontine Price. While there is no proof that this story occurred, rumor has it that when Price was singing Aida, Bumbry asked Price, why did Verdi name the opera Aida when Amneris does most of the singing? To which Price replied, when I sing Aida tonight, you will know why he named it Aida. Lending to the validity of this story, on the Met podcast Musical Chairs with Bumbry, there's a moment where she remarks that Amneris can steal the show in Aida. She's definitely not wrong. Here is Bumbry and Price in the confrontation scene between Aida and Amneris. <laughs> Although Bumbry believes that Amneris is the most important character in Aida, that never stopped her from singing both roles. 
In fact, in 1973, when she was transitioning from mezzo to soprano roles, she even starred in a video of the famous Act II confrontation scene that we just heard, with her as both Amneris and Aida. How is that for soprano envy? Let's get rid of all other performers altogether and use Catalani's puppets. In the same scene that we just heard her sing with Price, here is Bumbry as Aida and Amneris. <laughs> Miss Bumbry is definitely a very good Aida, but she's a great Amnadis. She stole the scene from herself. Also, some sopranos who fear their co-stars stealing their glory. One famous instance is when mezzo-soprano Shirley Verrett performed with the highly underrated and tragically under-recorded soprano Leila Genser. Famous from the late 1950s through the 60s, Genser was a lirico-spinto soprano with what critics described as a smoky vocal texture and stunning high pianissimi, much like Caballé. Genser made a career picking up the forgotten bel canto works performed by Kalas and reviving numerous others. Like Bumbry, Verrett also successfully alternated between soprano and mezzo-soprano roles, such as those in Aida. Her most notable accomplishment was switching from Adalgisa to the titular role in Bellini's Norma. According to Verrett, Genser was a real prima donna and very sensitive to any newcomer usurping her place in the Italian public's favor. One can imagine how this anxiety might have increased in an opera like Donizetti's Maria Stuarda, which includes two crucial soprano roles who face off at the end of Act Two. During the bows after their performance of Stuarda at La Scala in 1967, Verrett recalls that when the cast came out to take bows at the end of the first act, we lined up backstage, which was the custom. It was also the custom for Leila Genser, who sang the lead, to go out first. 
She grabbed me by the hand, I suppose to prevent me from usurping her position. That kind of thing was known to happen in opera theaters all around the world, especially in Italy. I didn't perceive it as a friendly grab, because she wasn't smiling. As she took my hand, she squeezed it very tightly. I felt my back stiffen and my eyes widen at the pain of her strong grip, with rings on her fingers that cut into my skin. I just took my free hand and covered her hand and rubbed it, as if to assure her that it was okay. I felt her hand relax, and she gave me a look as we went off stage. She still made sure that I didn't upstage her, though, by pulling me off the stage after her. <laughs> the important thing was that we became friends from that moment on. In a bootleg recording, we can hear that Genser had no cause to worry. After Maria Stuarda, sung by Genser, calls Elisabetta I, performed by Verrett, a bastard child of Anna Bolena, the crowd erupts into spontaneous applause just before the Act One finale. To return momentarily to the clacks at La Scala, Genser was also no stranger to being heckled. During a production of Bergis Don Carlo, hecklers began to scream voce, or voice, because in their opinion, she wasn't singing loud enough. Genser left her position, walked downstage, stared the hecklers down, calmly walked back to her spot, and signaled the conductor to start again. Genser unquestionably knew how to hold her own as the prima donna. So far, we have heard Bumbry and Verrett against their soprano colleagues. But what happens when these two divas sing together? In 1982, 
to commemorate the anniversary of contralto Marianne Anderson, the first black performer to sing on the Met stage, Bumbry and Verrette agreed to perform a concert of duets in which they exchanged the soprano and mezzo-soprano roles. We haven't done that. The whole idea right. of, the, of this, uh, the duo with, with uh, Grace and myself was because we had both been in both repertoires successfully. It's a very unique combination we have here because we both have been stars in, as mezzo singers and we are stars as soprano singers. And to, for us to be able to sing together on the same stage and not scratch each other's eyes out, first of all, <laughs> is already an, a major achievement. <laughs> Isn't that right, Shirley? I think you're right. Oh, oh, Miss right. 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 <laughs> right. Chester, you know, like Jews. <laughs> Despite a few squabbles between the divas during the rehearsal process, the product is quite impressive and was videotaped at Covent Garden in 1983. Unfortunately, one of my favorite excerpts of the concert was not filmed due to time constraints. This is another Donizetti confrontation scene, this time between Anna Bolena and Giovanna Seymour. At the beginning of Act Two, Anna discovers that Giovanna is her rival for the king's affections, which results in Anna's beheading. Although it's not a popular operatic excerpt, this duet is literally a fight between two competing women, much like the mezzo-soprano rivalry we have discussed so far. Also, the embellished bel canto style offers these two women ample room to show off their range with interpolated high notes and ornamentation. What I find so amusing about this performance is how these singers take more liberties and attempt more high notes than I have ever heard recorded by sopranos in this scene. Perhaps they are trying to prove that they are in fact sopranos, or simply trying to outsing one another. Either way, it's thrilling. In her autobiography, Verrett claimed that it was the best singing they did jointly and was also a great showpiece. To conclude this podcast of diva anecdotes and this section on the prima donna complex, I will play the duet from Anna Bolena, recorded at the London concert. Although I think it would be hard to question whether these two women are in fact divas, I will leave you to decide if you think Bumbry and Verrett are truly mezzos or sopranos. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Here's Bumbry and Verrett in Act Two of Anna Bolena.
Many thanks to lecturer, critic, and scholar Matthew Timmermans for taking us on such an informative and entertaining journey through the lives of great opera divas. If you live in the New York City area and enjoyed Matthew's last few episodes, be sure to catch him lecturing live this season here at Lincoln Center in one of our courses, Singers of the Ring. Go to metguild.org lectures for more info. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.